People with cognitive disabilities are very vulnerable to many types of abuse. We'd like to think that people with additional needs will have someone to take care of them, but like many other vulnerable people in society, there are those who fall through the cracks. There are also cracks in other parts of our society, and as I'm sure many of you know, the criminal justice system doesn't often work the way it is meant to. There are many people who get away with crimes, while there are others who are imprisoned for years for crimes they did not commit. This episode will examine how these two flaws in society resulted in a wrongful conviction in a murder case that to this day remains unsolved. Let's uncover the unsolved murder of Mary-Kate Sunderland. Hello and welcome to the 14th episode of Uncover True Crime Podcast. My name is Stephanie and each week we uncover a different unsolved true crime case ranging from missing persons, unsolved murders, Jane and John Doe's, and suspicious deaths. You can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify and other podcast streaming apps as well as on YouTube just by searching Uncover True Crime. If the audio in this episode sounds a bit different it's because I'm trying out a new mic. I hope that this will improve the audio quality going forward but please let me know what you think. Without any further ado let's uncover the unsolved murder of Mary-Kate Sunderland. On the 9th of December 1999, the body of an adult female was found in the Greenbelt Forest Reserve in Lake County, Illinois. Her death was soon declared a homicide as the autopsy revealed she had been severely abused, beaten and tortured prior to her death. While the medical examiner was unable to determine if she had been sexually assaulted, he did conclude that she had died from blunt force trauma to the left side of her head. She had discoloration to parts of her back, buttocks and thighs caused by a burn from a liquid of some kind. The medical examiner was also able to tell that she had some kind of cognitive disability and had died less than 12 hours before she was found, so either late on the 8th of December or early on the 9th. Despite not knowing the identity of the murdered woman, two weeks later police would make arrests in her case. 24-year-old Jason Strong was charged with first-degree murder and his two friends, Jeremy Tweedy and Jason Johnson would be charged with concealing a homicide. An undercover policewoman posing as a sex worker spoke to Jeremy Tweedy shortly after the murder took place and he gave her several different accounts of the murder, all of which implicated him, Jason Strong and Jason Johnson. Police claimed that all three men confessed to their role in the murder, so this really should be an open and shut case, right? Investigators said that Jason Strong picked up the woman who he believed was homeless and took her back to the motel where he was staying at the time. The woman apparently made herself something to eat and upon discovering Discovering this, Jason Strong poured hot wax over her body and hit her on the side of the head with a tequila bottle. Jason Strong phones Jeremy Tweedy and Jason Johnson, who also lived at this motel, and asked them to help him get rid of the woman. The three men, believing she was still alive, dumped her in the forest reserve and left her there. In July 2000, Jason Johnson pled guilty to the charge and was sentenced to three years, while Jeremy pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice as part of a plea deal in exchange for his testimony against Jason Strong, who by this point had recanted his confession, saying he was coerced into confessing and was pleading not guilty. The defence argued that Jeremy Tweedy had given several different accounts of what happened the night of the murder. 
He initially said that he lived in the motel at the time of the murder, but then said he moved in afterwards and only heard of the murder because he heard Jason Strong and Jason Johnson talking about it. He also said that he'd seen the woman with Jason months before, but then later claimed that all three of them had only met that woman the night she was killed. Dr. Mark Wittek, who conducted the autopsy, stated that the discoloration on her body that was caused by a burn was indeed consistent with melted wax which backs up the men's original confessions. In later interviews, Jason claimed that his lawyer told the jury that his confession was in fact truthful and that he was there during the murder but did not participate. Jason denies having any knowledge of the murder to this day and has since admitted that he didn't fully understand or know what his rights were in terms of getting a new lawyer or aiding in his own defence. Jason Strong would be found guilty of the murder and sentenced to 46 years in prison. It wasn't until six years after Jason's trial, the police would finally identify the woman as being Mary Kate Sunderland, a 34-year-old woman who lived in Illinois, just 43 miles away from where she was found. She was not reported missing until 2001, which could explain why it took so long to connect her to the body found in the Greenbelt Reserve. Another reason she wasn't identified sooner is because she was reported missing in Carpentersville, but she was found in Lake County, and those two counties never communicated about the cases. Mary Kate's disability meant that she was unable to travel independently, and her home was just over 35 miles away from where she met Jason, so how did she get to the side of the road where Jason supposedly picked her up? Police discovered that three weeks before her death, she had gotten married to a man called Chimizo Gonzola, who, like Mary Kate, had a cognitive disability. He'd been committed to a psychiatric facility in 2000, and upon his admission there, he told staff and the police that he had killed Mary Kate and buried her body in his garden. Police searched the garden, but obviously did not find her body. Police did not take his confession seriously because he told them that he killed Mary Kate in Cuba because his family told him to. Jason Strong maintained his innocence and for a while he represented himself until Northwestern University and two other law firms helped in his defence. They appealed his conviction in 2010, citing new evidence and the fact that Jeremy Tweedy had recanted his confession. Not only was this unsuccessful, but the prosecution refused to even take another look at the case now that the body had been identified as being Mary Kate. Jason Strong's legal team identified two possible suspects in their motion, a mother and a daughter, who were known to be stealing from Mary Kate and who had been keeping her from contacting her family prior to her death. Michael Mermel, the attorney who prosecuted Jason, was asked why his office refused to look at her case again after she was identified, to which he said, quote, Her identity had nothing to do with who killed her, how she was killed, or what happened. Jason Strong confessed to her murder and showed police where he dumped her body, so explain to me what difference it makes who she was. Taxpayers don't pay us for intellectual curiosity, they pay us to get convictions, unquote. As I stated in the first ever episode of this podcast, I feel very passionately about Jane and John Doe cases and this statement makes me so angry. What difference does it make who she was? I'm sure it would make a lot of difference to her loved ones who had to wonder for years where their daughter, sister and friend was. 
It makes a lot of difference because murder victims are not just bodies or evidence in a crime. They are people with real names, real stories and real lives. So yes, it does matter. He actually retired over the controversy from this statement as well as his propensity for not fully considering all the evidence in cases he prosecuted. And on one occasion, he actually tried to retry a man for murder even after he was cleared by DNA evidence. Lake County, where Jason was prosecuted, has the highest number of wrongful convictions in Illinois, and Illinois has one of the highest rates of wrongful convictions in the whole of the United States. Prosecutors like Michael Mermel are a huge part of this problem. Prosecutors who are only interested in getting convictions and not interested in getting justice. All of his appeals were denied, but in 2013, the Illinois Attorney General and the Lake County State Attorney agreed to reopen the investigation into Mary Kate's death. They re-examined evidence and found three different medical examiners willing to testify that based off the autopsy photos and tissue samples from Mary's body, there was no way she had died within 12 hours of being found, like the original medical examiner testified. Dr. Scatiz, Dr. William Oliver, and Dr. Larry Bloom all stated that she had in fact died several days before being discovered and that the injuries on her body were the result of long-term abuse, not of a single burn, which blew a huge gaping hole in the timeline and confessions of the three men. In 2014, Jason Strong appealed yet again, citing new evidence and his unopposed grant for federal habeas corpus was granted. All charges were dropped and he was released from prison the following year. He was granted a certificate of innocence in 2016 and received $222,939 in state compensation and he has recently settled a suit against nine law enforcement agencies. As a result of this lawsuit, he will receive $9 million in damages. Now I'm going to discuss the two female suspects Jason Strong's legal team argued were possible suspects in Mary Kate's murder. Kareen Lewis and her daughter Tracy Lewis have a criminal record for defrauding and stealing from the vulnerable. In 1997, Kareen met an 82-year-old man when she worked at the nursing home where his wife lived. The man, who had mental health issues, gave Kareen money after she told him she was struggling to pay basic bills. Their relationship eventually turned sexual and that's when Kareen and Tracy were able to access his life savings, bank accounts and assets. They stole the lot, worth over $170,000. Tracy and Kareen were known to be friends, and I'm using that word very loosely, with Mary Kate and had also been stealing her money. They were even arrested in 2000 for trying to withdraw money from her account. Now, this happened one year after her death, but one year before she was officially declared missing. Mary's family claimed that Kareen and Tracy made it impossible for Mary Kate to contact them. As horrible as it is, if Mary was willing to give Kareen and Tracy her money and was telling those concerned about her that she was choosing not to talk to her family, the police's hands would have been tied. It's horrible to think that this goes on, but sadly it does. Mary Kate's family reported her missing when a few years had passed and they were unable to trace her at all. I understand that part. But what I don't understand is why police didn't even attempt to contact Mary Kate after Kareen and Tracy were arrested for withdrawing her money. If the police had realised that Mary was missing at that point, she probably would have been identified a lot sooner and at the very least, the jury in Jason's murder trial would have had reasonable doubt. 
According to court records, they tried to access Mary Kate's bank account again after she was reported missing and also tried to get an ATM card in her name. Also, remember how I said that three weeks before her death she had gotten married to a man called Chimizo Gonzola? Well, that wedding took place because Karine and Tracy, quote, influenced, unquote, Mary to marry him. Not sure that's a word I would use, but anyway. Mary and Chimizu were both mentally disabled and I don't know if they would have been legally capable of consenting to marriage. It's possible that they were, but I'm inclined to believe this marriage was all for Corrine and Tracy's benefit. I was initially unclear as to what they would gain from the marriage, however Jason Strong elaborated on this when he was interviewed by the Wrongfully Convicted podcast. He said that Corrine and Tracy had convinced Chimizu to lie on a set of railroad tracks. When the train came speeding along the tracks, Chimizu was severely injured and ended up having to receive a below-the-elbow amputation of his arm. Corrine and Tracy then helped him sue the state of Illinois for this accident and he won. However, he didn't get any of the money. Corrine and Tracy kept the money and then shortly afterwards, he married Mary Kate. When I tried to find out more information about Chimizu Gonzola, I found two obituaries that say that he died on the 17th of January 2019 in St. Lucie, Florida. The obituary does not contain any more information about him, although it says that he was homeless at the time of his death and anyone with information about him should contact the county's community services. I think this is so they can find his next of kin in order to make burial arrangements. He is currently at the Hazley Funeral Home in St. Lucie and on their website they ask that anyone able to assist with burial costs should also contact the St. Lucie Community Services. If you know anything about Chimizu Gonzola or you would like to aid in his funeral costs, please call 772-462-1777 and then press option 0. In an amazing turn of events, the reason Mary Kate was identified was because of another Jane Doe found in Racine, Wisconsin in 1999, only 30 miles away from where Mary Kate's body was found. Police initially believed that the Racine County Jane Doe and the Jane Doe in the Greenbelt Preserve were connected back when they were both found in 1999, and there was certainly good reason for them thinking this. Both women were found within months of each other. Their bodies, while in two different states, were fairly close in proximity, and both females had a cognitive disability. It was through this line of inquiry that the Wisconsin police discovered Mary Kate's missing persons report and told the police in Illinois that they had a possible match for their Jane Doe. Mary Kate's dental records were examined and were found to be a match. The Racine County Jane Doe also got her name back, but not until 2019 when a tip came into the Chicago PD that a woman had confessed to killing a young girl in Illinois. It was through this tip that the police identified the Racine County Jane Doe as being Peggy Lynn Johnson Stroder and her alleged killer, Linda LaRoche, was arrested and is currently awaiting trial. Linda LaRoche's daughter and ex-husband have cooperated with the police and told them all about the horrific abuse Peggy received at the hands of Linda. Peggy, 18 and homeless, went to a walk-in medical clinic looking for help. 
Linda offered her somewhere to stay in exchange for her looking after her children and cleaning her house. Peggy accepted the offer, but Linda would go on to abuse her for years, abuse that ultimately led to Peggy's death. It seems unlikely now that Peggy and Mary's cases are related, as there is no mention that Linda had any more victims, and I'm pretty sure we have already spoken about the two likely suspects in Mary's death. Nevertheless, I will keep you updated on any updates in this case, as well as Peggy Lynn Johnson's. Her case is one I have followed for years, back when she was still a Jane Doe and it has always stayed with me. I remember the moment I found out she had been identified and I watched the news conference live, so happy that she could finally be laid to rest. On Uncover True Crime Podcast's Instagram page, I did publish a post about her finally being laid to rest last month and now she's buried next to her mother. I do post about recent developments on cases I haven't covered on the podcast over there, so if you're interested, please check out our Instagram at Uncover True Crime Pod. It seems likely that Peggy will receive justice once her case goes to trial and I hope one day Mary will receive justice too. If you have any information on Mary Kate Sunderland's case, please contact the Lake County Sheriff's Office on 847-377-4000. All pictures and sources related to this case can be found on our blog at Uncover True Crime Podcast blogspot.com. That's everything I have for you today. Thank you for listening till the very end. Please stay safe and have a good night.